welcome back to Cyberology, Dakota State University's podcast for all things cyber and technology. I'm Jen Burris. My name is Gabe Midland. And today I'm really excited to have Xander Morrison, our podcast producer, here as our guest to talk a little bit about sound design and his experience. So, Xander, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Xander Morrison. I'm a senior here at Dakota State University, graduating in May, so uh, my time here is limited. But um, I figured while I was here, I would uh, share a little bit of uh, knowledge about sound design and use some of my uh, previous experience to back that up a bit. I've got a lot of experience writing electronic music. I do uh, recording and editing for podcasts like this and uh, other non-musical audio applications. Um, I do a lot of live sound. I'm the president of a club called DSU Live on campus. So setting up and running sound systems and lights for all kinds of live events like concerts and that kind of thing. Awesome. So how did you first kind of get interested in this area? Sure. So I've always been in a very musical family. Both my parents are professional musicians with master's degrees and all that. Wow. Um, Yeah, definitely a lot of uh, musical exposure growing up. And um, once I started, you know, exploring the wide world of music in like middle school or so, you know, looking into stuff independently, something that caught my eye was electronic music because I was a computer nerd as well. And it merged two of my interests. And I was like, okay, well, creating music with computers and it sounds cool. I want to learn a little bit more about that. And um, I picked a great time to get into it because it was right at like the height of popularity of... Uh, like when dubstep first started exploding and uh, Skrillex was everywhere and, you know, Deadmau5 was performing at the Grammys and Daft Punk was coming back. And, uh, yeah, it was a uh, particularly interesting time in that field of music. So right place, right time, I guess. Good for you. So I don't really know enough about the program here at Dakota State University. How large of a community is it? Sure. So it's a pretty small program. Um, I'd say probably about twenty-five to thirty students. Oh wow, uh, that's across, great! Yeah, yeah, all the uh, all the grades and whatnot. It's kind of hard for me personally to tell because my only uh, experiences that I get with underclassmen are whoever shows up to DSU Live, and okay. that's pretty much it because I don't have any classes with them. And Sound Labs, I guess, which is the other sound design oriented club. But yeah, probably uh, around 25 to 30 is uh, a good guess for that. We would obviously love to have more. It's the only uh, sound oriented program in the whole state. That's how I ended up here. And I I think capitalizing on that would be a smart decision because there's obviously a market for it. Great. So um, you mentioned Skrillex and Daft Punk. Were there certain musicians that, like, inspired your interest in music creation? Yeah, so I was uh, and still am really interested in uh, the music of Deadmau5, who was, like, primed to become, like, really popular um, and then uh, ditched his record label at, like, the height of his popularity to go and do his own thing. And I don't know, his, his music ranges from kind of moodier like house music to more like almost industrial sounding. He, he's kind of like 
like a Radiohead or Nine Inch Nails type artist in the EDM world. He's stuck to his niche very well and uh, has been an artist I've never stopped enjoying. I've also had a lot of uh, fond memories with uh, music from Monster Cat, who is not an artist, but a record label that is a collection of a bunch of artists um, that all do just a wide range of uh, excellent electronic music from uh, like 2014 or so to about 2018 was uh, when I was like really listening to all of that stuff. And um, yeah, still to this day, pull a lot of inspiration from that and uh, listen to a lot of artists that uh, originally I heard on there and have since moved on to do other things. Off the top of my head, there's a guy named AU5 who does just absolutely insane uh, dubstep music that uh, uses a lot of just new and interesting like production techniques to kind of differentiate the sound itself, even if like the compositions aren't anything like, I, I don't want to say not anything original because um, it is it is very like ear catching and interesting, but in electronic music, the artist's uh, goal is twofold. You've got the regular songwriting stuff where you have to dictate structure and melody and your chord progression or um, however many of those things that you want to include. But then you also get complete control over every individual sound in your song, which you can go as extreme with as creating it all from scratch with synthesis or pulling samples from sample libraries and doing things that way. And that offers a lot of uh, creative freedom to uh, use certain techniques that you find interesting that other people haven't done before because the options are literally limitless. Another artist that I've been really into uh, recently is Grabbits, who kind of does like a combination of like mid-tempo electronic with like older like hip-hop and indie rock influence too. It's It's just kind of blended together into one thing that is uniquely him. Justice is another good example of that, where they just take a couple genres, like, sure, why not take, like, electro and hard rock and disco and throw it all in a blender? Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. You, you've talked a lot about groups I've never heard from uh, or uh, before, and I'm kind of interested after this to go back and look, because I, I love to hear different music styles and things like that. Off mic, we talked about how you have been working also at the Washington Pavilion. Um, tell us more about what you do there. Is it, is it a lot like the live DSU kind of thing for concerts and things? or um, Eventually, it will be. Okay. Um, that's, that's my goal is to go full-time and do uh, sound for productions there. Uh, right now, all I'm doing for them is part-time stagehand work. So anytime there's a show that needs setting up or tearing down, I'm usually there. Um, the hours suck, but it is good experience. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes they'll be out there until like two in the morning. And oh my. Yeah. Okay. But it is a, a good way to get my foot in the door because um, I've been told they hire from within. So eventually uh, I will get to have more experience with the actual running of sound for events. I probably still won't be like their primary guy, at least for a while, but sometimes they have multiple shows going on at the same time. And rather than bring in another sound guy from like Omaha or 
Minneapolis or wherever. They said, I'm I'm a hot commodity. So I take that as a compliment. You bet. You should. I mean, I, I was always under the impression that um, a touring band and things like that, that part of the, the group, if you will, the ensemble included the sound guy. But you're saying that for the hall... You kind of help them with that. Yeah, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It kind of depends on how big the production is. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, for example, the other weekend we had Alice Cooper come in. He's got a sound guy, right? Okay, (laughs) Um, okay. Or uh, we'll have, like, Broadway shows come in, like Mm -hmm. uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I'm pretty sure, had their own sound guy. But if it's for an event that is not being put on by a group that has a sound guy, then the you're, Washington Pavilion you're, provides you're the one. one. Okay. And either way, that main sound guy who runs it during the show is not necessarily in charge of all of the setup or teardown that goes into it. He's just kind of the group director because he knows, you know, what goes in what bins and then what right. bins go in the semi-truck when. Sure. Regarding these new artists mm-hmm. um, that you talked about, now there's a lot of work done on the keyboard of a computer, right? Mm-hmm. Are, do they? I hate to sound like I'm ignorant, but I am. I'm ignorant. Do these bands do vocalizations too, or? Yeah. So it really depends on the artist and what they want to have included. Um, I listen to a lot of instrumental stuff. Um, you do just okay. because there's a lot of artists that don't feel comfortable putting their voice out there, or maybe it just doesn't fit every song that they write. Other artists, like Gravitz I mentioned earlier, he does all his own vocals, and he is just excellent at it. And because of all of the opportunities that he has to go in and uh, edit his vocals, and because it's just him, he can record like 50 takes of one thing and make it sound super polished, harmonize it perfectly, Um, and it just sounds excellent. It really depends on how in-depth you want to go with a particular instrument or sound. You have all the opportunity in the world to make it sound as uh, unique or standard as you would like it to be. Well, I'm going to take you back to the 1980s. Sure. Phil Collins, a member of the group Genesis, and Mm -hmm. he did a lot of solo work. He came out with an album, Face Value, and what was really amazing for me at the time was he not only provided the vocals, but he did all the instrumentation, laid down all the tracks. Sure. And so that sounds like what you're describing is that they put all the pieces together yeah. one at a time. Yeah. And that's extraordinary, I think. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely overwhelming when you first get into it because uh, having to be responsible for every instrument and every element yeah, uh yeah, it, yeah. it seems like a lot to juggle but honestly if if you have enough of a frame of reference to think at least kind of like a drummer or kind of like a guitarist or at least know what guitar is supposed to sound like uh with enough practice you can convincingly get yourself pretty much all the way there and i i think that's like a really interesting opportunity that is not just limited to electronic music now. Now that music technology is where it's at, right, you don't have to have, like, access to an entire orchestra in order to make a film score, right? It helps if you do, and they're probably going to record one anyways for the final take because usually it sounds better. But, like, when Hans Zimmer is, you know, scratching stuff out, 
just coming up with ideas. He doesn't need 30 string players in a room. It begs the question, are, are you going to form a group? Are you going to put together something? I do a lot of stuff on my own. Um, I'm not opposed to working with other people or anything. I just haven't found really anyone that I want to do like, you know, a full-on like group project with, okay. you know, like mm -hmm. long-term. I like doing like a few like one-off collaborations here and there, but usually it's just more so for like the novelty of it, where it's like I'll I'll bring in someone on campus who does like heavy metal vocals, and I'll be like, okay, this will be fun to work with. That being said, I don't want those kinds of vocals in every single song I make, too. Sure. So sure, fun. What That's do great. you enjoy most about creating music? Then I enjoy the feeling of like seeing an idea finally sound like what it sounds like in my head, right? Because I've got an idea of uh, what I want things to be. It's just a matter of getting it from my brain to the computer. Sometimes that process goes smoothly. Most of the time it doesn't. Um, but sometimes it sounds cool anyways. And um, if I can get even just like a segment of a song that I've written that hits me emotionally the way I want it to, like if it gives me goosebumps, even after, you know, having heard each element from it like 50 times, that means I'm onto something special. And uh, that's not really a feeling I'm ever going to get over. Good for you. And how does it feel to share your work with others? It's interesting. I would like to do more just individual work to push out there because right now my... Uh, my library is a little limited, but it is always kind of fun to hear a little bit of feedback, even if it's someone who, like, I don't know in person, right? Like, if someone leaves a comment on my YouTube channel and is like, this is awesome, that puts a smile on my face. It's sure, only happened sure. a few times where it's someone I don't know. Um, usually it's my incredibly supportive grandpa. But um, <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> hey, my mom leaves comments on my Instagram posts, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I appreciate that kind of support, too. Sure. But yeah, I would absolutely love to be able to do music-related things for a living. That's my end goal. Okay. Um, doesn't have to be like a luxurious living or anything. But if it's enough to get by and I can, you know, still enjoy myself while doing it, sure, that sounds like heaven to me. So it sounds like you've achieved a lot you you've come a long way in your in your understanding and your knowledge what's the next thing for you that you really want to be able to master or get under your belt i'm interested in a lot of applications of music that are not just sitting down and listening to it right if it's music that's involved in like a film um i've done that uh recently with a student film on campus uh i added some score to that I would like to do music for like a video game. I think that sounds fun. Other than that, kind of pushing my own music into less of a niche audience and uh, like getting myself onto a record label sounds incredible. Um, I've, I've been thinking about uh, doing like a series of like live streams or YouTube videos. I haven't really decided yet, but it's basically, okay, I make one song a week and I keep doing that until I get signed to a record label. And eventually someone's going to notice. Yeah, right, right. You know, some people live uh, life waiting for luck to strike. And it luck does play a role, but you have to put yourself in the position for that luck to happen. I mean, it just doesn't pluck you out of the context of which you want to be successful in. You, right. You've got to put yourself in the game. 
Yeah. And luckily, now that the internet is a thing, that's easier than ever. With streaming services taking off as they have, you no longer really need a record label in order to get your music out there. It sure helps for promotion's sake and to have your name associated with other names of people who do similar stuff to you. That's really cool to grow your audience, but it's not required to get music out there right? Because you don't need physical copies anymore. Right. Um, even before streaming really took off and the internet was still around, you could kind of do that, but, you know, the best you could get was like a 240p YouTube video or a shady Napster download or something like that. But now, like, there's, there's services, and I use them, that you upload your music to it, and it will put it out on all of those streaming services for you. And you don't have to worry about, you know, going through and uploading it individually to like Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Tidal, everywhere. A lot of the hard work is taken care of for you. And even if you do want to go the uh, traditional label route, uh, kind of like I do, um, that's easier now than ever too, because there's uh, sites like Label Radar where you can say, okay, here's the kind of music I make, here's like my super specific niche that is this song, and any record label that is interested in that, that is also on Label Radar, will get to listen to it and be like, yeah, I think I want this, or they'll pass on it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a really interesting opportunity, and I fully intend on taking advantage of that in the future. Good for you. So how would you say that the internet and all these technological advances have kind of impacted this industry? On the artist side, it is now easier than ever to create the ideas that you want to create on a low budget. Even like super high-end, like industry standard technology that in the past probably would have cost like thousands of dollars is now like a couple hundred bucks, which is a big step up from uh, where we were at even like a decade and a half ago. And that's that's really exciting because it allows more and more people to create what they want to. It does kind of lead to uh, an overpopulation issue, but I'm a firm believer that if you create music that is good enough and unique enough to differentiate yourself, and if people want to listen to it, then they will. I don't think it's necessarily as competitive as some people make it out to be, right? Like, it's not like stealing listeners from uh, other people who make the same music as you or vice versa. Um, and then on the listener side, it is now easier than ever to discover new artists. And some platforms really push that as like a selling point too, right? Like Spotify has their their big Discover Weekly playlist where it it keeps track of all of the stuff that you've listened to and goes, okay, here's the kind of stuff we think you would like. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. But then I, what I do is I go and add that stuff into like my main rotation, right? The stuff I do like. Then next time around, it's a little more zeroed in on what I'm interested in. I've still got a lot of songs from like that 2013 to 14 era that is not really a style that I'm interested in revisiting necessarily with like newer artists and so sometimes that pops up a lot but if I listen to less of it it's less likely to show up in that playlist so stuff like those discovery algorithms and how it's presented to people around the world who use those kinds of platforms that all makes it easier than ever to get heard 
which is, I think, a positive thing. I subscribe to Discover Weekly and um, love the fact that I, I hear from different bands or from the bands I'm already familiar with, uh, songs, titles I hadn't heard before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's fun. It's absolutely great. Yeah, with uh, especially with electronic music being as kind of underground as it is, it's it's very easy to stumble onto just entire like genres that you've never heard before, mm-hmm. um, because of how like hyper specific it can get. The fact that those kinds of algorithms can push that stuff to you without you having to go out and search for something that you didn't know existed, that's really useful. Because if you're really interested in like underground rave music or whatever, there's probably like a handful of YouTube channels or whatever Mm -hmm. that will promote some of that, but you're never going to find all of it. With Spotify, you can go down the rabbit hole of related artists forever, basically, until you have found all of them, and you never will. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the most interesting thing you've learned as you've kind of developed as a sound designer and music creator? I think a lot of the uh, interesting stuff to me is uh, taking full advantage of all of the tools that you have. Using things in creative ways, whether they are physical things like a piano or whether they are digital tools that seem pretty rudimentary on the surface, uh, there is always a creative application for it where it's used in a way that it's not quite intended to, but it sounds interesting anyways. And I love that kind of stuff. And certain certain artists, uh, Mr. Bill, for example, is a really, really good artist for this where uh, he'll take like just a simple delay effect, right? Like you'd hear on a guitar where it goes, bah, bah, bah. and uh, he will pan that delay left and right. He will uh, make it just delay after like, a handful of milliseconds so that it repeats at the interval of a note and he'll cut out all of the low end frequencies from it so it's just the high stuff and then it just sounds like someone's like crinkling tinfoil in your ears just all over the place and uh once you hear that sound in a song of his congratulations you're never going to hear that exact sound ever again because uh it's completely different depending on what you feed into it. And even if it does pop up again in the same song, he's usually got like a different permutation of that effect that's just a little bit different. So it's never exactly the same. So finding uh, unique applications for things that people have been using for decades, that stuff is is really what interests me. And uh, another, another big thing is um, spatialization, which is kind of a, a newer thing in the music world where you're familiar with surround sound systems, right? It used to be that you had to go through some pretty specific setups to create music for that, for like a film or whatever. And now it's slowly becoming more and more accessible to create like a home studio with that kind of approach. The big proponent of that right now is uh, Apple's flagship audio workstation, Logic, right? It just introduced a compatibility feature 
with the Dolby Atmos surround sound system algorithm. I don't really know what to call that. And we have a uh, studio downstairs that uses that. And it's really interesting to play around with because there's all kinds of possibilities there that you never would have thought of before, right? Like there's a few like demo tracks. Montero by Lil Nas is uh, one of like the demo tracks that comes with that. And you can see visually um, kind of where things are being placed in the spatial field because you have full control over where whether something is in front of you, to the left, behind you, or even above you on uh, certain certain setups. Just being able to place things very precisely like that is another really interesting thing to me that I want to explore more. So does that impact the listener then too? So currently, not always. It depends on where you listen to it. Right now, a lot of it really depends on what you are listening on. If it's just like your laptop speakers, you're not going to notice. Mm -hmm. If it's like a pair of cheap earbuds being run out of like an iPhone 4, you're probably not going to notice. But as as algorithms develop to kind of take that surround sound experience and transform it into just a stereo listening experience with left and right, that will become more and more accessible. And uh, it was kind of that way when stereo first became a thing too, right? Like uh, the Beatles recorded an album that was uh, really experimental with stereo panning, right? Where like the drums were all the way on the left side and vocals were all the way on the right side and it just sounded like no one does that nowadays, but the fact that you can is uh, interesting and I'm glad they explored it because now people know, mm -hmm. right? The White Album and the song back in the USSR starts with a plane landing. Sure. And it starts, I think, I believe from the left and then the sound kind of, you can hear it go to the right. As a 16-year-old 50 years ago, wow, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. And really exciting. There's uh, people who use that kind of uh, spatialization in their music now, just in like the stereo sense too, uh, just to add like little bits of realism to it, right? Like there's, uh, there's an artist I'm really fond of named Varian who does uh, kind of like a combination of electronic and orchestral and like goth rock, which sounds completely out there. Um, and sometimes it is, but, uh, for their orchestral stuff, they will, uh, pan certain instruments just a little bit to the left or to the right. So it sounds like you are sitting in an actual orchestra hall. So nothing is right in the sure. middle unless yep. it's where that would be sitting. Harps, for example, would be way off to one side because they're always on like the outer edge. And there's certain things that get exceptions to that. Like if they bring in a vocalist, they're not going to make them sound like they're standing in the back of the room or whatever. They're going to want to bring that Front more forward. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of little touches like that that really make a mix for that kind of song work. Mm -hmm. Because if it's not realistic enough, then it just sounds like an imitation of it rather than the actual thing. And honestly, if you listened to a lot of Varian's music, you wouldn't be able to tell that most of it is synthesized, which is really like, that is the mark of someone who knows what they are doing in that field. What would you want 
people to know about sound design or what would they be surprised to know? Sure. So sound design, first and foremost, is everywhere that you can hear sounds, right? Not just digitally, not just like electronically, like I've been talking about anywhere, right? Like when you slam a car door shut, someone made it sound like that intentionally. And then when you turn your car on, when it beeps at you and gives you like a little welcome, that's also intentional. You don't really think about it because you've got four other senses that that sound is competing with at the same time. But um, anywhere that that fifth sense is, there's usually someone behind it. And uh, it is a very widespread field in a surprising amount of ways. And we, we do a pretty good job at tackling like the most popular of those applications here at DSU, I think. We've got a class that I'm in right now that's devoted to uh, implementing sounds into video games in Unity, making things sound convincing as if you were in the game. There are singer-songwriter classes for people who are interested in the more traditional music stuff. There's a film scoring class. There's, uh, there's a lot of unique opportunities out there if you know how to manipulate sound. Sound forensics is a uh, special topics uh, class that isn't regularly offered, but it was for a semester, and I took that, and that was really interesting because it was all about trying to extract any kind of like intelligible information that you could get out of a recording of like a crime scene. And so we used actual uh, examples of like a particular shooting in wherever from years ago and uh, taking recordings from different places that were all taken around the same time. And you can hear gunshots in all of them and using like the delay of those gunshots compared to the muzzle sound to kind of triangulate about where that person would have been standing who shot that gun, which is not at all like an application that you would first think of when you think of sound design. But like I said, anywhere where sound is, there's someone who can do something with it. So a variety of applications. Absolutely, yep. An infinite variety of applications. Mm-hmm. So what are you looking forward to most? In terms of? Uh, your future in this kind of field. Sure. I mean, I'm interested in seeing what kind of new advancements technology can come up with that are complete game changers for people like me. For example, there is a really expensive soundboard at the Washington Pavilion at a gig I worked a couple weeks ago. And uh, it had like an option for spatialized monitoring in it. Because normally on a like live soundboard, if you hit solo on something and then put headphones on, you can hear just that thing. But with spatialized monitoring, I'm assuming at least, they didn't let me touch it because it's worth more than my entire like college degree. But um, <laughs> I'm assuming it means you would be able to hear approximately where it would be in the room as well as all of that. And just like little uh, advances, little inches forward that don't seem like all that much at first. But then if you look back a decade at where we were at then, we realize we've come a long way and uh, we'll just keep going. <laughs> I don't see any end in sight for that. Any final questions, Gabe? No, I, again, it seems like every time we start to close in 
on an idea or on an approach to something, we find out it's more infinite than we imagined. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, like when we do research, we may come to some conclusions, maybe one or two answers to questions we have, but we also get five new questions that sure. we didn't have before. Yep. And it, it sounds like it's analogous to what you're talking about in the sense that once we've mastered a certain technique, we've also along the way discovered new and interesting things that we can try in, in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the, the beautiful thing about music is that no matter how much you boil it down to theories and like algorithms and ways to make your music sound good consistently on a technical level, there will always be those creative applications where you don't quite know what's going to happen, and sometimes it might not work out, but a few times it does, and then you stumble across something that someone's never done before. That's something that is, uh, I don't think, ever really going to go away, because then someone will develop a tool that capitalizes on what you found out, and then someone will find a way to use that tool in a new way, and so on and so forth. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being our guest, Xander. Uh, it was really fun to kind of get to know a little bit more about the uh, behind-the-scenes work that goes into sound design and how that impacts things like podcasts. So thanks so much for being a guest today and for being our producer. We appreciate it, and we enjoy having you. We do. And thank you to our listeners. Please rate and subscribe. 